podcast from Aberdeen Investment Trusts. Hello and welcome to today's podcast on the Dunedin Income Growth Investment Trust, where we're going to be taking a deep dive into ESG. I'm Cherry Reynard and with me today are the Trust Manager, Rebecca McLean and ESG Analyst, Andrew Risk. So welcome, Andrew. Welcome, Rebecca. Um, Andy, if we could start with you. Um, There's been some pushback on net zero recently. Do you think we might see governments and corporates roll back ESG targets? Well, I I suppose in the UK, we already are seeing some uh, rollback from the the government side, uh, as we've seen the news flow lately around EVs and and, uh, boilers and things like that. I suppose the disappointing part around the news flow is that beyond the bits and pieces of maybe sort of misunderstanding about what what was actually required in some of these policies is that a lot of the a lot of the sort of mainstream discussion is around the costs i mean any policy that's aiming to sort of advance our chances of reaching net zero need to you know, carefully consider the costs that the sort of population is going to face particularly like lower income groups but i suppose you know one thing we've noticed a lot of discussion about costs doesn't doesn't talk about the cost of doing nothing and we see that more and more of from the sort of financial impacts of of climate change and what it, and the toll it's having on, on different parts of the world so and, and added to that there's not that much talk about the benefit side which is, is definitely going to come through for job creation and investment and so forth so will do we think that you know the governments will continue to roll back uh i suppose what we hope or what i personally hope really is that the governments will you know they'll look at the opinion polls in the uk things like climate change are very actually rather high and widespread support in terms of uh, people's how people care about this thing and so it's, it's not something restricted to younger groups and and equally you know from the corporate perspective they want they are often willing to invest they're just looking for the policy stability so uh, I suppose added to that on the corporate side will they roll back I think I mean, there might be a little bit of reevaluation because there were a lot of very ambitious targets put out in recent years, and maybe we want to try and understand how they, whether they can reach them or not. But I think for our side, we're just looking for those companies that can kind of, you know, can just sort of really stick, really sort of grasp the mega trends which are around these issues that are ultimately, you know, the costs of green technologies and so forth are they're falling, the consumer interest is growing, and and underlying some of the political noise, the the policy trends in terms of tightening regulation and what companies have to do around sustainability, if it's plastics, if it's social side, they, these just keep increasing. So it's there's the signs of rollback get a lot of headlines, but I think we're we're just trying to look for those companies that are really sort of have a view on the longer term. Rebecca. Oil has been in the headlines a lot recently. Um, There was obviously a big spike up in oil prices earlier in the year, but that's come down a little more recently. Um, What's your approach to the sector on the trust? Thanks, Cherry. So um, the Need and Income Growth Investment Trust is unique in the market in that it has a sustainable approach. Um, And so um, we are looking to integrate ESG into our fundamental analysis of companies, but we also have a sustainability approach which outlines exclusions, both of positive um, allocation and negative exclusions, which help us to reflect the risks and opportunities which are presented by ESG factors in the portfolio. 
So um, what this means for the oil sector, um, there are a number of environmental protection screens that we have in place in order to minimise the fund's exposure to the long term risks that come with fossil fuel production, uh, where, uh, given we're expecting there to be a transition towards cleaner energy. Um, and this has implications for the energy sector. And um, so we're looking at companies' exposures um, within some of the unconventional oil and gas segments. And um, we're looking at companies with exposure to coal um, as, as being a high risk commodity. Um, but when we're looking at conventional oil and gas, we're also looking at the mix within the conventional um, commodity exposure. So the extent to which a company in the sector is um, looking to develop oil assets as opposed to renewable energy generation or natural gas as a sort of transition and commodity. So that's the framework that we have in place. It means that we take the energy names on a case by case basis. You know, luckily, we've got expertise on desk, Andy, with you know, 12 years of experience in sustainability to help with this analysis um, aided by um, additional analysts on the desk and also our central ESG team um, in order to understand the extent to which different companies are exposed to those long term trends that I've mentioned. So doing that. Um, we'll sort of run the analysis and we are looking to assess the materiality of environmental issues to the energy names and engagement is a really important part of, of that analysis too so we're looking to understand um, from engagement how a company is managing this so we do have Total it's in our top 10 it's the only oil and gas company which is in which is in the portfolio um, from a quality perspective you know it, we are looking for companies at the high level which does deliver resilient earnings through the cycle and so it's hard from a quality perspective to be too overweight oil um, I've mentioned the sustainability uh, restrictions and sort of thresholds that we set in place as well which which does have a, a limiting factor um, but we have to offset that with the um, the cash generation and the income um, distribution which you are able to achieve from uh, from a number of the energy names too. So there's a place for Total in the portfolio, but at an aggregate level, the portfolio is underweight energy. I think the first point really on Total is that, of course, it's a complex sector from a sustainability perspective. But the things you would flag really or highlight, you know, this this company has the largest in recent years, has made the largest investment in low carbon energies among its close peers. By far and away, has the largest installed capacity of renewable power among the oil and gas majors. It has set out fairly uh, ambitious targets for the amount of its capex, which is going to put into the sort of transition investments out to the end of the decade. And, and interesting, you know, that they're fairly fairly transparent around the how the company tests the resilience of its oil business. If if we were to see a faster than expected transition and that maybe led to lower oil demand, lower oil prices. So, I mean, is it enough to reach all our climate goals? Probably not. Um, and this is something we're, we're engaging with the company with at the moment. Um, but what you, I think what you do see from, from talking to the company and the public announcements it makes is that what it does show is the transition in Tadao is underway and there is ambition and commitment. So that positions them favorably from a perspective that as they are getting more and more ready that if the policy as well and the regulatory environment shifts to encourage the end users to move faster away from oil then companies like Total are 
not only kind of ready to act and willing and to invest in it, they've started it. And they're interestingly, to, to Rebecca's point around income and cash flow, starting to show more proof points that this is actually sort of financially um, beneficial to the company based on the returns they make. Rebecca, I wonder if we can go back to basics a little bit. Could you perhaps give me an example of a new holding, the ESG rationale for that, and how you initiate an engagement with a company? Yeah, so we've introduced National Grid to the portfolio in the last couple of months. Um, so the company um, is a electricity transmission and distribution business which has assets in the UK and also in the US. So from an ESG perspective, we see the company as a solutions provider. It is enabling the energy transition that we've talked about, um, but also is providing energy security to the UK. Um, and I think what's interesting about the ESG rationale um, is that it really does uh, coincide and sort of um, it's the same as the investment rationale, which is the demand for investment to upgrade the, the electricity grid infrastructure in the UK and the US is inextricably linked to the energy transition. And so the in order for the UK, for example, to meet its offshore wind renewable energy um, targets, there is a, is a huge amount of investment that's required in order to connect where the energy is produced, which is, which is generally in Scotland, and bring it down to where it's consumed, which is down in the south of England. Um, so in order to reach those ambitious targets, which the, the government set out, we need to see over two and a half times the level of, of transmission in order to get that electricity to where it's needed. And so National Grid really plays into this structural theme. Um, and it means that not only does the, the company um, forecast and guide to a huge amount of investment in the infrastructure, um, of which 29 billion is expected to be uh, in the renewable energy um, transmission. Um, but this then leads into uh, the market's expectation and our expectation for asset growth for the business and also for earnings growth. So we're looking for high single digit asset growth and, and similarly sort of mid to high single digit earnings growth, which is you know, a pretty sort of powerful um, and resilient outlook from a financial perspective. When you couple that with the the distributions, the cash distributions in the form of, of dividends to shareholders, which is expected to grow in line with inflation. So giving you that inflation protection and an attractive yield of about 6%. Um, it, it's, it should provide relatively defensive, but a high yielding contributor to the portfolio, um, which fits nicely into our sustainability approach. So we've been assessing sort of what ESG means from a financial perspective, we're not that opportunity and looking to quantify it, um, but we're also looking at what the risks are associated with that. Um, and so engagement is an important part of being able to understand those issues, but also um, work with companies in order to communicate our expectations and share best practice. And that's, that is a piece of work which is ongoing. Um, it involves not only um, the stock analyst who, who covers the name at Aberdeen, but also the portfolio managers and Andy has been instrumental in that engagement. I think what the practicality issue is, that is, is, is how Rebecca highlighted the fact that the electricity transmission lines that companies like National Grid and others will 
plan to build will go through new areas on a larger scale that could have or impacts local populations and potentially have environmental, strong environmental impacts as well, depending on the routes chosen and how those projects are implemented. And so that's the that's the, the crux of our engagement with National Grid is to understand what, what sort of frameworks the company has in place. They do have guidance and uh, information and structures to engage with communities and ultimately we'd say to secure public consent. But as Rebecca has sort of described, the scale that we're now talking about going forward in the coming decades is so much higher that, that presumably there'll be so many more people effect, affected by these things that, I mean, in the with the ultimate goal that we reach reduce the risk of climate change get towards net zero but we can't discard the other people that were or environmental locations that were, could be impacted along the way so really it's the crux of our engagement on these issues is is what how are the let's say the non-financial factors like impact on communities how are they valued you know how do we think about the environment environmental impacts so ultimately from a broader concept of cost you know we take going for the, the most uh, let's say sensible option for the country longer term because clearly all parties want to avoid a situation where people are not compensated or they're unnecessarily affected or projects get delayed and we we sort of lose sight of the um, the ultimate goals really yeah. Absolutely. Andy, sticking with you if we can, I wonder if we could explore uh, another one of the trust holdings in AstraZeneca. Um, it's currently the largest holding in the trust. And obviously there are some clear social benefits um, to the company, but the pharmaceutical sector is not without its sort of risks and controversies. Um, how do you balance the positive and negatives? I think one of the key points really to sort of start with is that for many ESG focused investors in the market like the pharmaceutical sector is perhaps a challenging more challenging one than people might imagine because of concerns around well just the nature of the fact that the, there is clearly an unmet need for the the drugs which uh, the companies produce but then the companies are also being commercial organizations which are aiming to make a profit and so how do we think about that that angle is of course a big part of our thinking and engagement with AstraZeneca. Um, it's specifically, you know, how do they think about pricing and, and what do they think about and how, what can they do about improving access to their products? And of course, the situation is sort of evolving, not 100% perfect, maybe not 100% transparent, but I guess some of the things we're encouraged around with AstraZeneca is the fact that they are a, a strong performer on metrics such as the Global Access to Medicine Index. Um, the fact that their best-in-class R&D is targeted at terrible diseases like cancer, where there is a, clearly an, un, an enormous unmet need. Um, so, so we do see a lot of positive signs there, I suppose, for the, for the, the medium longer term and the sort of sustainability case for AstraZeneca. For us to sort of get even more comfort around the you know the, the sort of risks you mentioned, I'd say the company and its peers need to continue to evolve and demonstrate how they can develop new pricing or contractual agreements with countries that you know incentivize the company for innovation, but then make sure the drugs get to the people that need it in a fair in a fair way and 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 thank helpfully astrazeneca has developed a i think it's a so-called sort of global patient affordability program it's, it's kind of dashboard where they've been looking at broader metrics around affordability 
And so from our side, we just really want to see going forward how that's actually going to work in practice. OK, great. And then just finally, a question for you both. Um, on your, your ESG priorities for the year ahead. Um, Rebecca, can you kick us off on that? Of course. So we will be continuing to do what we do in terms of identifying what are the most material ESG factors to um, the companies in the portfolio or being considered for the portfolio. So that focus on materiality will remain the case. Um, but there are a number of themes which we have been discussing that we think are, are growing in importance. Um, so one that I'd highlight is the, um, the need to continue to consider social factors. A lot of the companies that we invest in and the nature of our, our investment approach and, and, and style is that we do have a number of um, human capital intensive companies um, which really do depend on their talent in order to drive innovation, drive sales um, and deliver the growth in earnings and you know cash and distributions which we're looking for for companies in the portfolio. Um, so within the context of the UK market and, and a broader labour market which is relatively tight with low unemployment um, and high wage inflation it's more important than ever for companies to be able to attract the right talent and retain the right talent. Um, and it's not an easy thing for us as investors to necessarily assess and analyze from the outside of companies. Um, but we do have frameworks in place and, and tools that we can use to get a better understanding of how companies are managing their human capital. Um, so I could highlight an example of a company in the portfolio, Softcat, which is a UK IT reseller. Um, and one of the reasons why we think the company will continue to deliver outperformance versus the market and gain market share is because of its culture and its talent its, and, it, and what this means for its relationship with its customers, which are mostly SMEs in the UK. Um, so clearly, given that is that is part of the company's competitive advantage and, and the investment case, you know, it's high on our priority in terms of understanding um, and monitoring how, how the company is managing its workforce um, through time. So we have an ongoing engagement with the company. We have an annual check-in with the, with the chair, for example. Um, and and it, it's very often a, a topic of discussion with management team. Um, so, you know, we're going to be looking at um, turnover, looking at development programs that the company has in place. Look, it's, there's been some recent sort of reporting from the company around diversity and inclusion. So we'll continue to look at what the company companies doing to, for example, attract women into the workforce and promote STEM um, education too. So there are a number of areas that we'll be looking at that we can uh, and um, metrics which will be um, we'll be drawing on to assess that culture. But it remains an important and material part of the investment case. So, yeah, I think sort of that's one example of uh, I think where social issues um, remain at the fore. Thanks. And Andy, anything to add to that? I think I would. Um probably flagged two things that are maybe prior to two main priorities from an ESG perspective for me for the year ahead. I, I'd say the first one is obviously linked back to the first question about and how, how a company is going to respond to any signs of, let's say, wavering political support, government support towards um, achieving our sort of sustainability and its zero goals, uh, and particularly in an environment if we have a weaker economic environment, how, what, how do companies respond to that? What are their sort of longer term plans and so forth? And I think 
the second point really is we'll dedicate clearly more time to understanding how companies are responding to the sort of basically a changing climate these physical risks um we've talked before about you know we've engaged with companies like diageo on on, on how it sort of manages water related risks in its supply chain and we really we need to sort of step up our our focus on that because you know we in september we've just had the hottest month on record um we're seeing these physical impacts more and more people may attribute them to different things but the 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 events are happening and and, they, and it leads to and it's impacting people and profits and, and and the planet and so we we need to really see who it, how well companies are really preparing to respond now to things that were previously perhaps thought that would materialize much further down the road great okay we'll wrap up there uh, so many thanks andrew and rebecca for that look at esg today um, you can find out more about the trust at dunedenincomegrowth.co.uk and thank you so much for joining us This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.